as we discussed, this will be a little bit unconventional because I'm sure you're tired of answering all the conventional questions anyway. So I'm going to throw a kind of unconventional theory proposition about the film at you and just see how you react to it. Okay. And so um, as you I'll do my best. Okay. All right. And so uh, I'm sorry I have to refer to an outline here to keep it organized, but um, we talked a little bit. Um, and by the way, this is, might seem challenging, but one thing I'm not challenging is the brilliance of this film, which from my perspective is not only one of the best science fiction films I've ever seen, but one of the best films and most important films I've ever seen, period. Uh, that, that's very so, good. Thanks. Okay. So um, we talked briefly at one of the early showings, and you stated that, uh, I thought it was quite interesting, you stated that the interpretation of any movie or any narrative is 50% the creator and 50% what happens with the recipient. Yeah. And so I'm going to stretch the mathematical metaphor to, and, and suggest that there could be another 50% that overlaps and influences both of those two parties. Okay, and that's a Venn diagram. Right. And that would be the archetypal domain. And, um, and of course, specifically, um, uh, when you say archetypal, so I'm going to be, mm -hmm. I need to know exactly what it is you're talking about. You're right. talking about the domain that relates to archetypes. So things right. that are commonly accepted in terms of, like, if you're being impolite, you say cliche, or polite, you say archetype. Oh, uh, no, well, I'm using archetype in the Indian sense. Oh, okay. Things like the hero and the devouring mother. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, sure. And these, these are like living agencies, not merely patterns. They, they, they shape us as well as being patterns that we can observe. And this is the sort of repeating myth type right. stuff. Right, and, and then there is a, an archetype that I believe I discovered in 1978 um, called, that I call the singularity archetype. Okay. And I believe that ex machina is largely a manifestation of that archetype, okay. which relates to evolutionary metamorphosis. Okay. And um, so I think most people assume that the film has three dominant characters, Nathan, Eva, and Caleb. But what I'd like to suggest to frame this is that there's a fourth and more de dominant character, which also best represents the archetypal domain and the unconscious, and that is the house. And the house as evolutionary crucible of the singularity archetype. And it, it functions operationally as the unconscious in that it is a paradoxical hall of mirrors that employs three specific things. Um, figure ground reversal. Phone call. Yeah, I know. Well, it's, it's a text <laughs> message. Right. I should shut this out. Um, figure ground reversal. Yeah. Um, misdirection, yeah. which is a conscious part of the film for sure. Yeah. And cognitive dissonance. And it basically creates a total reversal so that what begins as a uh, Turing test aimed at Eva, the AI, turns into a Turing test, a consciousness versus mechanical test of Homo sapiens, which is personified by Caleb Smith. And with the name Smith, the most common last name, it suggests that he's an everyman sort of standing in for the whole species. And for the audience. Right, exactly. Yeah, because because exactly. Caleb is a surrogate for the audience in many exactly. ways. Exactly. certain key points. And there are many brilliant ways in which in which that becomes more powerful in the course of the film, which which I'll get into hopefully. But so the house begins as a brilliant and paradoxical image system um, that is sort of like the outer manifestation of Nathan's character. And Nathan in turn, just like in US law, corporations are considered people. So Nathan is basically a corporate person. He represents these kind of seemingly friendly, seemingly unassuming, you know, a regular guy kind of uh, cool uh, personalities. But underneath, 
just like underneath the house that looks so eco and friendly and unassuming at first, but as soon as he gets to the front door, which is sort of like a bank vault and has this intrusive scan, we begin to understand that the house is actually not this eco-friendly thing, but is a fiber optically intense military industrial complex right. that's going to invade privacy. So, so just to say, the only thing I'd want to add to that okay. is, is just to not stop it at the boundaries of the house, because right. the house exists in a landscape. And, right. And so what you have is, is you have this uh, character stroke house, which I, I right. would agree with that. I mean, okay. that the house does have a character. Right. And, and has a very particular role to play, which is like a character in some respects. It right. even talks at times. Right, right. Um, uh, but it's contextualized within a landscape. And mm. so, so some aspects of the character are thrown into relief by the landscape. Mm. You have a huge external world. with un right. It's an uncontrolled environment. Sky, right. glaciers, rivers, mountains, forests. And then... What that does is draw attention to the degree to which this house is micromanaged and over-controlled. Right. And, th and then also starts to disintegrate. Right, and especially with the huge waterfall, which is a dynamic landscape element. Yeah, an unstoppable Right, unstoppable force. Yeah. And so this is one of the themes, is that what looks like is what is set up, the house, as under the control of the ego, the corporate person, yeah. turns out not to be, to be its own entity and, and to be the one that actually breaks down the ego itself. And so um, so you have the house has this persona of, of eco-friendly one side, military industrial aggressive other side. And then what's also interesting is that we see persona masks on an illuminated wall inside yep. the house. Yep. So that's pretty fascinating. And so um, um, Nathan seems to be the ruling ego in control of the house. But what the singularity archetype does, among other things, is it breaks down ego structures and patriarchy to create metamorphosis. And so Nathan, and I know you uh, found Apocalypse Now to be an inspiration. So Nathan, like Kurtz in Apocalypse Now, is an ego in a breakdown phase already. Agreed. And just as the jungle, which is clearly the unconscious in Apocalypse Now, is melting down Kurtz, the house is already melting down um, Nathan, and which further suggests that it is also like the, the unconscious. And then there are these series of, of misdirections, cognitive dissonances with human and mechanical forms uh, changing and becoming more human, and then figure ground reversals until the Turing tester, the everyman Caleb Smith, has to test himself to see if he's human and um, he switches places with Eva, and he's the one who remains trapped in the house as the, as the rat who cannot solve the maze. And so Caleb, the everyman, arguably fails the Turing test because he can't get his, for a specific reason, he can't get his sexuality to be more conscious than mechanical. And so basically the search engine has used his porno searches to generate the perfect face to arouse his on a projection, you know, his romantic projection. I just want to take issue with okay. with uh, use of the word Turing test because okay. Turing test is it, it's a sort of post Turing test. I just right. it's, it's me being pedantic about it. The, oh, no. the, the the actual and there's a little discussion about this right. in the movie actually. The actual terms of the Turing test is. Uh, is, is not really a test for sentience, it's a test for language in some respects. Okay, right. Which may or may not imply sentience, but, but anyway, yeah. Keep right, well, I mean, and, and, and obviously human beings are, are supposed to be the definition of the successful 
passing of the Turing test, but yet when it went in a deeper meaning, it's not so clear how much we pass it because there are places in which our sentience is compromised by mechanicalness. And so, yeah, um, and also I think we probably just perceive our conception of what the consciousness we have mm-hmm. is may well be wrong. I mean, we right. may just misperceive what we are in as much as that mainly what we are is consciousness. Right, and that's part of the, the theme of the singularity archetype is that as we pursue AI, it calls into and transforms our own sense of our own consciousness as we try and, and act like gods and, and create it but maybe physical yeah, substrate. I, I'm, I'm sure that's true, but it might be because we misapprehend what consciousness is. I mean, right. it, it may not be as well. The, the truth is with a lot of this stuff is there aren't concrete answers to the questions that you mm-hmm. can provide. Because at this exact moment in time, we don't know. We, 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 don't, we don't know how consciousness works and we don't know what sentience is in some mm-hmm. respects, in some very right. important respects. Right. But anyway. Yeah. And so, um, so it's, it says, so Nathan points out about, you know, we have a type and we have a sexual orientation and it's a dominant theme that, that controls so many aspects of our lives and yet we don't choose it. And as Gurdjieff once said, if there were a second obstacle on the path of enlightenment as great as sexuality, that, that he would never have been able to achieve a state of enlightenment. Who? So, uh, Gurdjieff, the great um, mystic, you know, who, who brought many of the insights of the East to the West and, okay. and created a system of, of yeah. how to become unmechanical. Um, well, I think he, he was most active in like early 20th century and so forth, like maybe up to the 30s or 40s. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> So the AI Turing test uh, turns out to be, from my point of view, sort of a vast misdirection that turns back on human consciousness at the precipice of metamorphosis and um, shows Eva breaking free of the house and, and succeeding in her next evolutionary step while Homo sapiens remain trapped by mechanicalness. Cool. And, and, and one of, one of the uh, mechanical, one of, one of the, the scary aspects of human evolution that's also picked up is that um, is psychopathy, the condition of being a psychopath. Right. And so the professional group that tests out as the highest in psychopathy, who's tested this, are CEOs. Right. Nathan's yeah. exact yeah. job, basically. Yeah. And um, so we see empathy versus psychopathy, and we see that. Uh, because a, a, a big theme going on, it relates even to the financial meltdown, is, is psychopaths as uh, ruling the world. And, and so we, we see, you know, are, are we, how much are we empathic? And how much are we living in the corporate cultural, what I call situational psychopathy? Right. So it really, um, as much as AI is a central theme, I think that even more powerfully in some ways, it's turning this advanced Turing test on us and showing us as uh, beings that you know, may be more mechanical than we think we are, less empathic than we think we are. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, it's, I think it's true probably that, um, that we misperceive ourselves in all sorts of different ways. Um, uh, in, I mean, one thing about empathy is that I think people often treat it as if it's a blanket thing mm-hmm. um, and a binary thing. You've either got it or you haven't. Right. Or that, and if you do have it, you apply it sort of generally to everything. Right. In fact, I think 
although there may be people who do not have empathy in any way at all, the people who do have it are selective about it. Um, right. They, they empathise with some people but not with others and, they, and a lot of it is related to proximity and what people choose to look at and I think that uh, so, so somebody who sees themselves as being good in many respects right. may for example uh, say regularly take cocaine and are choosing not to think about the means by which that cocaine arrived in their wallet you know, and maybe not thinking about some of the people that are getting killed in Mexico uh, in right. order to, to get the cocaine to their wallet or Colombia or wherever it is. And um, uh, so, so we, we can choose to look or not look. And right, like so many of the morally ambiguous characters at the beach, obviously. What, what, I would, what, right, what I would say is that it is just, just to sort of, again, slightly modify a bit like the Turing test thing what you said right that in the character of Nathan I wouldn't necessarily say he's a psychopath I wouldn't mm. I, I know that I've, I've read those same articles that say right. CEOs have a higher incidence of, of uh, that particular thing than, than in the general public and uh, like that may or may not be true I'll sort of take right. it as, well, yeah sure why not um, it kind of makes sense doesn't it um, right. uh, in the case of Nathan there's a kind of there's a game he's playing Mm -hmm. which is that he is, to an extent, presenting himself as something from which this robot needs to be rescued. And right. so it is within his interest to mm -hmm. appear that way to this young guy, and because the young guy is a surrogate for the audience, to us as well. Right. And, and so, in my mind at least, there's an ambiguity there. But, okay. but, but that doesn't necessarily affect the broader terms of what you're saying. Yeah, and, and psychopathy is on a, a spectrum, a continuum, as you pointed out. And also, it's really fascinating, his last line that most people in the audience reacted to as funny, which it is, but also has a lot of deeper meaning, this is unreal. Mm. So if you think of him as an ego, this is the most real thing that's ever happened to him, but what's unreal for the ego is death and total loss of control, which is what he experiences in that moment. Yeah, and that aside, the whole thing is unreal. Right, it is <laughs> surreal for sure. Yeah, I mean... Right. Uh, um, uh, you can have that thought at many times and many places in many contexts. Right. right. And what I thought was especially brilliant also is how you um, perform that Turing test on, on the audience, on the viewer, especially a, a heterosexual male viewer because of the cognitive dissonance created where you start out with Ava with the human face which is, because if she had a wire mesh face we wouldn't identify with her as, as a, a Romantic projection, or, or maybe not as quickly, because right. because one of the things that people do is is they do project sentience quite quickly into things. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in a way, in the end, I think that's often what empathy is: is it's understanding that something else is sentient, right? And uh, and in some ways, I I think it's true. Humans sort of misunderstand their own sentience, right? I think that's highly likely, right? Um, uh, but they also misunderstand the sentience of other things in, in as much as that sometimes they project it into things that don't have it. Um, mm -hmm. We do that a lot. Right. Uh, or sort of reflexively. And I think that's because, uh, so I mean objects. It might be like a cuddly right. toy or it might be a pen or it might be a computer or a tree that we feel has a degree of sentience that they've got to sure. And um, uh, it, it's, um, it, it, it's one of the, I, actually that unreal thing that Nathan says in some respect relates to that that 
that our sense of what is actually going on is really quite fluid. I, I saw I saw a really interesting experiment that a, 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 a professor of neuroscience presented in a lecture that I was uh, attending a few months ago, where um, it sort of shows this in quite a literal way. I hope I'm, I do the right job in describing it. But basically yeah. what it does is, is it takes an image, a white screen, size of a cinema screen in the context of the right. lecture. There's a black cross in the middle, and around it, at the points roughly sort of where the hands on the clock, you know, one, two, three, four, around would be, there are these mauve dots that go around. Mm. But one of them is missing. And then what happens is he starts to animate the process, and the dot, the missing dot, starts to move around. So it's at the 12 o'clock position, then the one, then the two, then the three. So it's a rotating missing dot amongst mm. a bunch of mauve dots on a white background. Right. Then he says, look at the black cross. You look at the black cross, and after about three seconds, even though you know this is going to happen, and he's mm. informed you it's going to happen, all the dots disappear, all the mauve dots vanish, mm. and where the missing dot was, a perfect green circle appears, moving in a circle, like this, going around. So the light waves that are hitting your optic nerve are being completely reinterpreted in a wholly different way you're seeing something without the benefit of LSD or anything like it that is literally not there. And what it does is it demonstrates to you that what your brain actually does is not tell you what's in front of you, but give its best guess on the basis that it has of what's in front of you. Right. And once you know that, once you know you can't literally trust what you see, where does that take you with consciousness? And I mean, it's, the world becomes so intensely subjective and so personal that uh, the unreal thing starts to become right. sort of actually the dominant state. Not, not just the moment when you get stabbed, but like the whole thing, yeah, in some respects to me. Anyway. Right, it takes you to the hall of mirrors of the, of the house where, yeah. where all our senses report is a, is a past tense recapitulation, a simulacrum but a guess. of information. A guess. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, and uh, the cognitive dissonance and we're about out of time, it becomes uh, manipulated during the course of the movie because as Eva becomes fully flushed, now the projection of romantic projection that a viewer might have onto her becomes fulfilled at the end and, and, and empowered so, so that the whole idea of you know, the mechanicalness versus the humanness becomes this incredibly blurred line. Right, yeah, yeah, but all right. Well, thanks so much for your time. Really Pleasure, man. Thanks a lot. Take care. Yeah, likewise. And there's my book. Thank and you. I've left you a couple of copies of my card. So. <laughs>